Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. In today's world, chaos is the only certainty. Over the last several years, we have witnessed the impossible occur in global events. The need for families and individuals to not only survive, but to thrive is now greater than ever. Experts the world over have emphasized the importance of generating additional forms of income. In the technologically advanced world we live in today, what if there was a way that we can use technology-powered AI where we can have algorithms do the work for you? Well, thanks to Algo Factory, that is exactly what we did. We teach you not only to leverage the market and carve out profits in the chaos, but we show you how to have a better quality of life by creating your own custom algorithm that trades on your behalf 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All the while, you can continue with your day-to-day -day responsibilities, checking in when needed on your trades that is working for you. Many clients of Algo Factory have been able to fund their savings, go on dream vacations, and even quit their nine to five jobs. They have created more time for themselves and more time for their families, all through the power of advanced AI and their personal custom algorithm, Algo Factory. Trade your job, upgrade your life. Good morning, everyone. It's V the Grill Economist coming to you live on this edition of the Multipolar Reality with the man of the hour who needs no introduction. It is the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, the brain trust that is here on Rogue News, the one and only Matthew Errett. He is joining us. And folks, you can find him over at the CanadianPatriot.org, CanadianPatriot.org, RisingTideFoundation.net, as well as his own Substack and Patreon. The links are all in the description box. Make sure you also get his books. It is the framework. It is the uh, the magnum opus of understanding the multipolar world and its historical significance by getting Matthew Eret's book, Symphony of the Two Americas, Volume 1, Volume 2, and Volume 3. It's all out, folks. Educate yourself. Prepare yourself. Broaden your horizons. Get your notebook and your coffee ready. Matthew Eret is here. Hey, V. How you What's doing? Up, buddy? <laughs> good, yeah, man. Hanging in there. Yeah, you look very good. Canadian. 
Thank you, thank you. I'm in camouflage mode here. I want to try to blend in. Yeah. You look very Canadian. Oh, I love lumberjacks. It. I love it. I love the plaid. Thank it you. Great. It looks got great. A, a coffee ready. Canadian tire. Yes. So it's as Canadian as you can get. It, it, it is the it is the uniform of Canada. Yes. Oh man, what's new, man? What's 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 happening in your neck of the woods? Uh, well, did, I mean, my neck- Trudeau. By the way, I don't know if you know this. You can't blame him. Trudeau said he didn't lock down anybody because of a, a he didn't force any vaccines on anybody. I don't know if you knew that, Matthew. Yeah, no. I, he uh, he has successfully redeemed himself by by promising that he never actually forced any vaccines upon anybody. He just right. basically ensured that you would be uh, considered a, a deviant white supremacist neo-fascist who could have your bank accounts frozen uh, at any given moment and have your life ruined by having no job or uh, or means of supporting your family if you didn't. But otherwise, he didn't, you know, he didn't force you to. He just encouraged it. Um, yeah, it's a complete rewriting of, of recent history, and he really does anticipate or expect that people have as much of a memory as a goldfish uh, to go along with this sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's it's really wild. It's a really wild lie. But uh, remember- in the same measure, too, you know, Biden also just, uh, you know, <laughs> alleviated the uh, the demands that anybody visiting the United States who are not American also be vaccinated. So there, there is this, I think, a, a shifting of of gears in an attempt to try to just get everyone to forget the trauma and shock therapy that happened to them for the past three years, and thus also not anticipate the next wave um, of attack, which will be brought online if people are not village, uh, vigilant as all Absolutely. hell. Absolutely, and, and and hold these people's rear ends, yeah. feet rear end, and their entire body to the fire because. I mean, it's like that reggae artist, <clears throat> Shaggy, from back in the early aughts. He wrote a song called It Wasn't Me, <laughs> you know, where he's, he's, he's singing about infidelity, where his, uh, his significant other was accusing him of, of, of promiscuity and this, that, and the other. And Shaggy would be like, it wasn't me. I'll show you in the corner. It wasn't me. And that's Trudeau. It wasn't me. I, I... That could be. <laughs> <laughs> that's Trudeau's theme song. It wasn't me. It wasn't yeah, that, me. That could be the anthem. That's, that that's, that's, that's really, hilarious. That's a, have you heard this song? It's it's quite hilarious. It's um, It, it really gets to the uh, the heart of, uh, of, of these of these uh, of these Cretans. Here you go. Yeah. Oh, no, you're playing. Remember that? <laughs> I, I don't want to get a copyright strike, but that's what it is. It's a, it wasn't me. You, uh-huh. you, I got you caught uh, uh, making vaccine mandates. It wasn't me. I got you stopped me from traveling on the plane. It wasn't me. <laughs> no, I, I mean it, it's um, it's worthwhile just holding into consideration the 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 level of of self delusion. I mean, you're you're dealing with a, a society which has lost touch with reality, which is how we yeah. found ourselves acquiescing to the insane policies that have brought us to voluntarily in many ways uh, go along with our own self-annihilation. Now, at the same time, that same tendency of breaking reality away from fiction and imposing a fictional construct of what you know reality is imagined to be onto the actual reality is also something which infects the minds of the very oligarchy and their auxiliaries that they have needed for many, many, I mean, since time immemorial to execute their designs. And when I say they, I'm speaking of any type of hereditary oligarchical power 
um, that requires degrees of separation between the inner echelons and their thoughts and ideas and designs and the actual material world. So that, you know, in, that's how conspiracies have always worked from ancient Greece and Babylon and Egypt all the way to the present day. You have to have a priesthood cannot just simply corral their victims into ongoing forever wars or depopulation or controlled starvation to manage the excess useless eaters. That's you, you can't just do it directly. You can't just tell people you're going to do that, especially when the masses you want to destroy are outnumbering you by a factor of, you know, a million to one. Correct. You need auxiliaries. You need degrees of separation to carry it out. And these auxiliaries themselves can't necessarily understand fully what the hell that it is that they are tools of. So there's degrees of um, mythologies crafted for each um, um, level, whether you're a Rhodes Scholar, whether you're a Fabian, whether you're a Cambridge Apostle higher up, whether you're part of the uh, the guilds of the city of London that have you know managed the uh, the fortunes of a lot of these these old families for a very long time. Um, you, you, there's, there's different, uh, mythologies to shape your identity crafted for each level of the echelon all the way down to the point where you get the, the idiot drug runners or the ISIS, uh, fanatics who themselves have their own mythologies and don't, they don't seem to question how it is that the CIA or, or military industrial complex is providing them logistical, uh, training support financial or otherwise. They don't really ask the question because in their mind, they're thinking, well, they're still in control of the game. And if the CIA is providing you assistance, it must be Allah's will. Yeah. The Nazis in Ukraine who are you know, being provided massive amounts of military support and financial support by the by the military industrial complex of the West and NATO. They, they probably still think just like the Ukrainian Nazis of the 1930s and 40s under Bandera, that they are the independent um ultimate controllers of the game and they will you they think that they're using the money bags of london or wall street to achieve their um <clears throat> religious like objectives to establish you know this this valhalla aryan dominated fascist super state and that involves the destruction of russia and all of these things they, they think that they're actually in control but they don't realize that they are the ones who are being played right and everywhere right all the way up through the, the Freemasonic degrees of the higher orders, all the way up through, you know, the, the whole structure, everyone thinks that they're probably in some way still... Um, calling the shots. Calling the, and they're not. They're not. Right. They're, they're all instruments for a will that is ultimately willing to flush any of these elements from the bottom to the top along the way, as long as it achieves the, the ultimate objectives, which are global feudalism that's at the end of the day the the objective it's it's not it's not that mysterious and today you've got biden you got trudeau these very low-level idiot auxiliaries yeah uh, they're handlers i guess you'd, you'd probably want to look at like jake sullivan the rose scholar assigned to handle uh biden since you know for about 20 years almost mm -hmm. or uh, uh bruce reed another Rhodes scholar uh, assigned to handle biden co-author of biden's omnibus omnibus bill that became the patriot act uh, that Biden put out in 1995. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Reed is another handler. Um, all of these, or Christia Freeland, another Rhodes Scholar handling uh, Justin up in, up in Canada. They're themselves all religiously like, religious like zealots for empire um, that are kind of stupid, right? And you just hear the way that they speak, the way that they, you could see the way that they strategize and think, think through uh, planning. Um, oh, it's terrible. 
Yeah, and it, it's, it's really pre- bad. It's premised on the on a false idea that doesn't exist. There, they in their minds, Russia should have already have collapsed through the economic sanctions, economic warfare, having been cut off of you know exports of their 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 Russian gas to uh, to Europe. All of these things should have happened. None of it happened. Putin should have been overthrown in a fifth column coup. Xi Jinping should have been already overthrown the way Jack Ma, World Economic Forum idiot, Bill Gates-like clone of China, called for a, essentially a rebellion of the Chinese elite against Xi Jinping and against the Chinese banking system in 2020. That should have worked according to the assignment put forth by Jack Ma or upon Jack Ma. That didn't work. Nothing's really working. And now you have uh, Xi Jinping increasingly putting forth a security doctrine which was first made public a few months ago that shaped his, his conversation with Zelensky um, to basically force Zelensky, despite him being a, a puppet idiot, even probably dumber than, than yeah, maybe not, maybe on the same level as Justin Trudeau, maybe a little bit more uh, into the cocaine, um, but to force his hand to come to accept the conditions that you will not have your full, what you believe is your full Ukrainian territory will not be there if you really want to survive. And that will involve accepting 85% or so of your territory and, and accepting that 15%, which is Crimea, which is the East Donbass region, is not coming back to you. You could save face maybe, but um, by simply putting on a show, um, acting like you were victorious and stopping Russian, you know, the Russian takeover of all of Ukraine, which was never part of the design ever, you could say that. But uh, it increasingly is looking like um, the more rational among the uh, the Western auxiliaries, and here I'm, I'm referring to even the uh, the London Guardian, um, recently came out saying that, uh, well, this might be the, the path we have to go. And we're seeing a bit of a shift where there's like a battle from, from the, the older faction, which is still trying to double, or the, the more insane faction, which is still trying to double down on their, their script. Um, and the slightly more sane faction who are basically saying, okay, well, let's, let's live to fight another day. Um, let's, let's shift strategies. So you got this on a variety of fronts. I mean, like I said, the London Guardian just came out with this interesting report. CNN also last week started showcasing a pro-Russian angle to the refugee crisis in Russia, um, actually taking on a, a, a sympathetic tone towards Russia, which we've never seen, which indicates in my mind, if CNN is taking that line and also in so doing, showcasing that Kiev is the one to blame for a lot of the the destruction that that has resulted in um, in the refugee refugee crisis. That implies a decision that has been made higher up in the echelons to indicate a shifting of of policy. And the London Guardian, like I said just today, uh, published a, a report from a very bad guy um, who has been a world government fanatic for quite some time, whose name I'm all of a sudden forgetting. Um, basically saying that uh, we have to imagine a, a Russian victory in Ukraine. We have to do this. Um, not that they're declaring that they're, they've lost or the white, they're not raising the white flag, but they're basically saying, you know, we, we, we miss, we, we, we didn't plan this out correctly. Or, right. So that's interesting. You know what's funny? It's like I, I was I read the readout that was put out by the by the Chinese after the Zelensky Z, Z, uh call, and the readout basically said, "Listen, here's the deal. You know, the U.S. will abandon you. You're 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 about to go into the press. You're going to go into the abyss 
Your forces are going to be destroyed. Your country is going to be gone. It's not going to exist anymore. You're pushing Putin to the verge of nukes. Like, what are you doing? You don't have nothing left. And the U.S. will abandon you. And the U.S. will not rebuild you because there's no track record of the U.S. rebuilding anyone. And so what are, they, what are you left with? I mean, you know, you, you, you give up now. You, you come to some sort of ceasefire, a peace agreement, and we can help rebuild your country. So that's a very, very big olive branch that the Chinese put out there for the Ukrainians. Yeah, and Ukraine used to be a gateway for the Silk Road. Not that long ago, Ukraine was a participant at, on, on the Belt and Road Initiative. Yes. That would have involved a, a 31 a or 34-year uh, trading partner of China's. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they, they've got a tried and true tested partner who has been able to, everywhere that China has gone, they've been able to demonstrate positive results that the U.S. has always failed to, to, to do as far as building large-scale infrastructure We've seen this everywhere um, and also providing the means for those countries that they do business with to uh, benefit in massive ways by those infrastructure corridors that also involve special economic zones, uh, the building up of, of industrial manufacturing bases, which China, when they went to Ukraine, China has offered the Ukrainian uh, government so many opportunities to rebuild their destroyed industrial uh, manufacturing sectors um, that were destroyed in the age of the 1990s. Uh, up until now, the U.S., all that they, and I, I shouldn't even say the U.S. per se, but the Anglo-American establishment, you know, the, the whole Davos crowd, all that they've wanted of Ukraine economically is to have it run by J.P. Morgan and BlackRock um, as part of a, you know, feudal test case for eating bugs and shutting down the actual real economy. There, there is some permission on, under that context of a bit of nuclear power, but that nuclear power would, would only be permitted if that if the nation itself is completely run by BlackRock, if there's any type of authentic nationalist impulse that hasn't been destroyed and is active within Ukraine, then nuclear power would not be permitted. So China's coming at them saying, look, you can still have nuclear power. We, we will help you. You can revive the nuclear that you once had. We will help you build more. We're, we, you can use that uh, to benefit your people, your farming, your agriculture, your industry, your residential, everything, as well as being a partner in a broader process of cooperation um, with the East. And, um, you know, it it's the only way that, that Ukraine can survive. I don't know whether Zelensky has the decision-making power. I don't think he has very much influence whatsoever in reality. Uh, but the fact is, it is Xi Jinping's conditions uh, are freaking out a lot of Western geopolitical operatives who are pissing their pants that that's a fact and they also you you see this also in um the recent peace agreements that have been brokered with saudi arabia now playing a key role and saudi arabia has realized that they have not benefited by by having their their positive relationships with iran destroyed you know iran and saudi arabia had developed a milestone peace agreement in 1997 under rasanjani the the president of of iran at the time who organized with his Saudi counterparts a comprehensive security and cooperation agreement. So there was a real golden age on the cusp between 1997 um, and September the 11th between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And with the U.S. going in with the full-blown, you know, Sir Bernard Lewis, Zbigniew Brzezinski arc of crisis um, program. Um, and in fact, there's a fellow uh, who's with the Schiller Institute named uh, Hussein Askari who just wrote an excellent report on the cradle that people can go check out going through a lot of this history. It was, it, I just read it this morning, but, but why did that, that golden age of cooperation break up? Well, it was because of that whole policy of utilizing radicalized Wahhabi Islam to play the Islamic card in the heart 
of Russia and China and the entire Central Caucasus region in the whole Southwest Asia region. China has a big border or not a big, it has a little border, but significant with Afghanistan, 76 uh, miles of border that they share with Afghanistan that, that goes right into the Xinjiang region of the Uyghur dominated Western China. This has been something which, you know, was deployed specifically. That's the article right there. That's a great article. This has been something that has been deployed to specific, like specific, there's been a variety of, of uses for this arc of crisis doctrine, um, destroying the, the, all of the potential mutual development strategies that were being discussed in the nineties into the two thousands, things like Bashar al-Assad's five C's vision that he began uh, championing back in 2004 to connect all of the major water systems around Syria with rail and development corridors that involves four, no, 11 countries that would participate that signed on to MO, uh, memori memoranda of understanding agreements to participate on that. Libya, Libya's Gaddafi had already been preparing the groundwork in uh, North Africa for a new development strategy centered around large scale projects, water and rail projects in North Africa that involved Sudan, it involved Egypt of Mubarak, it involved uh, a lot of participation from other Arab countries in Southwest Asia as well that would have been part, you know, playing a positive role if September 11th and the whole Al-Qaeda card hadn't been inflamed in order to set that whole region on fire and at the same time destabilize ultimately Russia and China and Iran, which is what you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski said in 1997 would be the only great threat to the new world order would be a potential China-Russia-Iran alliance. Now, <clears throat> that is entirely what happened. In 2005, Saudi Arabia and Iran um, saw rifts. The Shia and the, the Sunni ideologies of both governments could not uh, coexist with those types of geopolitical rifts and the destruction of Afghanistan, the destruction of Iraq, and everything else. Saudi Arabia was obviously assigned to play a very destructive role with its money bags financing a lot of those jihadist oper operatives who had a sort of Wahhabi bent and were deployed. Also, Turkey playing a, a certain role with its own Sunni Wahhabiite um, proclivities that were also providing support to a lot of these groupings in Libya, in Iraq, in Syria, and uh, and especially in Afghanistan. And you know, at the time, Russia was dealing with the Chechen crisis. Um, um, the Muslim card was being utilized by the CIA, by MI6, to create a crisis in the heart of Russia, the under the, the weak, soft underbelly. You know, keep in mind a lot of the ISIS fighters were Chechen former Chechen rebels who cut their teeth fighting Russia during the Chechen the Chechen uh, crisis earlier on. Uh, China began seeing an explosion of terrorist activity in uh, Xinjiang, which involved hundreds and like I think it was uh, about 170 cases of explosions, ter terrorist bombings. Uh, knife-wielding terrorists going into public trains, just stabbing Chinese civilians, uh, cars driving into civilian centers and shopping malls in China as part of this jihad against uh, Beijing that was also being, again, directed by the CIA. Now, <clears throat> that was always the, the uh, design. Now, the difference between Russia and China versus the West is that when dealing with this crisis, number one, they didn't actually cause it, whereas the Western uh, neocon MI6 operatives did actually cause it and then offer the solution. The difference between the solutions was that in China's case, they didn't bomb any countries 
um, back to the Stone Age. They immediately went to work to try to broker back-channel peace negotiations and deliberations between rival entities, which we finally saw manifest now with the great um, explosion of peace peace dialogues. Oh, wait, that's my new article. Here, it just went up today. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yes, it um, is. <laughs> cool. I'll say something about that. But <clears throat> they also on top of not bombing any Muslim country uh, and instead providing the means for economic growth, they pro they went to their own population of increasingly radicalized um, uh, Muslim men of China, of Xinjiang, and provided training, jobs, uh, programs for education, um, learning Mandarin, learning actual useful trades, engineering, uh, carpentry, all of these things, and providing an environment whereby these uh, young men could find real productive work as useful citizens of a, of a broader world, which they did to the point that today, and also building, I mean, China began to rehabilitate and build new mosques. Um, they began working with um, with imams. In yeah, it, it, it was literally the worst genocide operation I've ever seen. It was an absolute failure on China's part. I've never seen a worse genocide in my life. I mean, they've increased the life expectancy from 40 years to like 72. They've moved the number of mosques from like 800 to over 22,000, right? Yeah. They've increased the prosperity and the trade and the and, and the commerce of the of the of the region a hundredfold. How dare they do this? This is one of the most poorly run genocides I've ever seen, Matthew. I'm enraged by this. As a, I know, as a I Western know. observer. They I think China needs to to abdicate their uh, their claim to being a, a you know or a, a, a genociding country um, who they, they just have not deserved that that award that's been granted upon them by the by the CIA National Endowment for Democracy and World World Uyghur Congress they don't deserve that award that they've been given they it should be taken back I think I agree I agree how yeah. dare they how, how dare, dare they? not I mean it, what you're saying is not it's not hyperbole I mean the, the, the fact that that Xinjiang measurably has increased seen an increase of average life expectancy consistently over the past 40 years with the biggest rates of increased quality of life longevity lowering of infant mortality um increased job opportunities all of these qualitative factors as well as um a retaining of their their native language and customs that hasn't ever see there's this, this theory that has been promoted um for for decades in the West, that anytime you have technological progress of an advanced civilization going into a region of underdeveloped, uh, poor um, civilizations, that the more technologically advanced um, actions will, like the Borg of Star Trek, do nothing but assimilate and destroy local customs, language groups, and everything else. Kind of like what what that now what that theory uh, does is it is it wants us all to believe in a formula which is not true. Now that might apply to globalization. And if you want to, if, if people want to lie to themselves and say that globalization is the natural evolutionary expression of technological growth in a sociological way, um, yeah, sure. That what that theory describes globalization, the you know, the 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 deregulation of nations, the nation stripping. The, the mergers and acquisitions that destroyed the small and medium farms and, and enterprises and banks over the over the past 50 years 
resulting in a homogenous blob of Borg-like assimilation, sure, that's then you would find that equation playing itself out. However, that is dishonest because globalization is an artificial geopolitical doctrine that's part of what Zbigniew Brzezinski, Henry Kissinger, David Rockefeller, um, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands brought on as a political artificial derailment of the natural, what was originally the natural organic creative evolution of the human species around the types of driving impulses to leaping over the limits to growth. As we saw with Abraham Lincoln, McKinley, uh, the policies of Warren Harding of protectionism of, of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal project that also involved protectionism national banking, the application of new discoveries to leap over those limits to growth and sharing them with poor countries that had been abused by the British Empire and their Wall Street lackeys for a very long time. John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Enrico Mattei, the industrialist of, of Italy, who had all worked to um, utilize the best of advanced scientific and technological civilization to provide the means for the poor countries that had been abused, whether in Africa, Asia, South America, or beyond, to do it themselves, to build their own uh, full-spectrum economies and not see the crushing of their cultures, which is what we saw with Kwame Nkrumah, right? Building the the uh, the Ghana, the the, the in 1962, he began working with John F. Kennedy and patriotic American industrialists who were in opposition to the J.P. Morgan Steel Trust, United Steel, and began building and, and finished building the biggest hydroelectric dam through again a JFK initiative in Ghana, which uh, was called the Vol Volca River Dam, that to the this very day has a plaque of John F. Kennedy. And the whole thing was, was not to smother um, Africa under some capitalist Darwinian control, but rather see the, the, um, the expression and the defense of African culture, which is what happened until the CIA killed J JFK and then ran an overthrow, a coup against Nkrumah and turned Ghana into an economic basket case. Same thing for Ethiopia. When Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, was working with John F. Kennedy and American patriots to build out the, and plan what became today the Grand Renaissance Ethiopian Dam, the Gerd, the, I, I misspoke it. it, it's the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which is now nearly finished. It's a 6,000 6, gigawatt, or sorry, six gigawatt, 6,000 megawatt uh, dam, hydroelectric dam, on the Nile, which uh, Ethiopia has, has nearly completely finished, turbines are begin, beginning to spin, uh, creating electricity for the grid in a very, very poor region of the Horn of Africa, right across from the Straits of, uh, of Bab el-Mandeb, which uh, you know bridges the Red Sea on a little strait connecting into Yemen, into Saudi Arabia. This whole region is ripe for development. There's a hunger and a thirst for it. We saw President al-Bashir back in uh i mean he was in there for uh, between 1989 all the way up until a coup d'etat displaced him in 2019 30 years president bashir during that 30-year time despite having been a george soros uh you know international criminal court um uh, uh what do you call it criminal who was who had his uh, an, an arrest warrant just like putin placed on his head for uh unspecified crimes of genocide that were never proven to be his uh, you know, he was never proven to be at fault, but despite that, they had a, an attempt to delegitimize him. But why would, why was this happening? Why was the international criminal court, George Soros, Susan Rice, Rhodes Scholar, Susan Rice, who is still a controller 
um, a handler of Biden and this whole foreign policy, why did they work so hard to delegitimize President al-Bashir of Sudan, which is adjacent right next to um, Ethiopia, and carve up Ethiopia, uh, Sudan into a north and a south? Why did they do that at the same time that they were fighting to create civil war within Sudan itself, as well as within Ethiopia, like, you know, which is what has been the, the norm. This is what my article goes into. Th this is not an Ethiopian or a Sudanese problem. This is a, a problem of Western imperialists who never disappeared after Sudan declared independence, but rather organized. The British, which were there since 1899 in Sudan, or 1898, had already discovered how to create tribal lines of division between the North, a Muslim-dominated North, and a Christian animist dominated South, which if you scroll down in that article, I, I hope they put up the uh, the image of uh, Sudan. Just keep scrolling down. No, keep scrolling down. 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 Okay, they didn't they didn't include the image. Damn. All right. Well, <clears throat> in the case of Sudan, everything in the region that in 2011 became northern Sudan which was carved up as a separate country from southern Sudan. Northern Sudan is mostly desert. That's that's you know, that's where the current fighting is breaking out where there's a danger of disruption into civil war. Um in the south, that's where you have well that you have the divide right there. In the south, this is where the vast majority of the most dense quality of fresh water um exists, a uh, greenery potential agri this could be what's known as the the Sahel breadbasket for all of Africa. However, it's also one of the poorest regions of Africa. It's on number 173 of the United Nations development list. So it's one of the most underdeveloped countries, in highest rate of poverty. There's about 12 million people living in the South, about 43 million living in the North. The North has very little resource. The South has a lot of resources, a lot of oil, a lot of gold, especially, but a lot of water and water is the key. I would say it's even more strategic than oil in many ways. The problem is most of, there's no infrastructure. So the, the, the entire GDP of South Sudan, which was artificially carved up as a fake country, like I said, um, after 45 years of foreign instigated, British instigated civil war, um, that has a, a GDP of $5 billion. The South, or the North only has a GDP of 35 billion, which is still a pittance, it's not very much, but that could be completely transformed. And there is a project which um, there's, there, President Bashir was doing several things. So since the nineties, all the way to 2011, he had been an advocate for reviving this little thing here called the Jungalai Canal. You ever hear about that? The Jungalai Canal? No, I haven't heard about that. Um, I'm looking at this map and I'm thinking to myself, these poor South Sudanese, all they need is more windmills and solar panels from from Americans and democracy. And uh, they will that's all they need is democracy and windmill and solar panels. Well, know. that's what Victoria knew. So Victoria Newland, um, <laughs> back genius. in uh, March of 2023, Victoria Newland showed up March 9th, 2023 in oh, Addis Ababa, which is the center of the Africa Union um, headquarters. Yeah. And um, she came there promoting specifically um, humanitarian or, <laughs> uh, sorry, democracy building in uh, Sudan and threatening uh, all of those different countries in the Horn of Africa um, with a variety of things that have not been made public. But 
the reason for her visit had a lot to do with what happened just several weeks earlier when the Sudanese government agreed to provide at the Russia-Africa summit, which also occurred in Addis Ababa, um, the second African-Russian uh, summit, the Sudanese government d uh, agreed with the Russians to provide a base called the Port of Sudan to the Russian military. And uh, that's been something which has been fought over for the past several years. And, um, and so when they did that, uh, Victoria Newland was deployed, uh, in, Anthony Blinken had also been deployed to threaten them. The U.S. ambassador came out saying there will be consequences, consequences if you don't um, cancel this agreement. And within minutes, you had fighting breaking out between two rival factions that are both um, claiming the authority of being the rightful controllers of or defenders of Sudan. I don't know all of the details, but we've got these two different groups uh, who are now, you know, they started shooting at each other on April 15th. We had uh, a situation where one group that represents the Sudanese armed forces, the actual official army, um, claimed that the um, that another group representing the rapid support forces under this guy named Mohammed Daglo, who's also the vice minister of the Supreme Council, was making illegal maneuvers in preparation for a coup against them. Now, the, 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 the person in charge, who's the Supreme Commander, um, who has this power sharing agreement, it's a military you know, government right now. Um, this guy's name is Al-Burham. And so they began fighting. And there has been so far an uneasy peace agreement. Now, what's interesting, and I'm going to get back, back to the Jungle Light Canal and, and uh, President Al-Bashir, but um, former President Al-Bashir, Bashir, but Instead of seeing a complete collapse into civil war, which is what I believe Western manipulators have been intending, what we have instead seen is a um, a, 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 a very fragile peace, which is being brokered through, I believe, I, I feel the Chinese hand everywhere here, but Saudi Arabia, which has been brought online with the, new, with the multipolar alliance after agreeing to um, rebuild their diplomatic bridges with Iran, with ending the 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 war in Yemen, which is now creating a, a very different dynamic and also joining with the Russia-China alliance. You know, Iran has a very, very large scale economic and security partnership with both Russia and with China, and now Saudi Arabia does too. So Saudi Arabia being the big player in the mix is vital. So Saudi Arabia is brokering a, a deal which both leaders of the rival Sudanese factions have agreed to show up to, probably in Riyadh, but maybe in South Sudan. And... Um, Al-Bashir had been promoting the rebuilding of what was known as the, the Jungle Eye Canal. So the Jungle Eye Canal disappeared from discussion, just like the um, the Five C's vision of President uh, uh, Assad in Syria that, that, that disappeared with the Arab Spring. The, so too, at that same time of the Arab Spring of destabilization of the Arab states, uh, the Jungle Eye Canal disappeared from discussion. Um, the, the connection that was last being discussed in a serious way of rail built up between Yemen and uh, Djibouti that would then connect through rail and other development corridors in Ethiopia, in Somalia, in Eritrea, which is here in the north of uh, Ethiopia, and up into Sudan, down into Kenya, Rwanda uh, later on. Um, South Sudan as well would see rail connections that would also involve uh, development of different um energy systems developing the water systems of the uh, of the nile these things all disappeared in 2011 when the whole region was really lit on fire 
Now what we're seeing with the whole peace process is a new type of business climate that's focused upon a new type of philosophy, or at least an old type of philosophy that we forgot of real honest business, win-win cooperation. So the idea of building, if you scroll up on that article, can you scroll up uh, a little bit on the, uh, yeah. So just go up a little bit to the, go up one more. Okay. So this is currently what Saudi Arabia and uh, and China have agreed upon, which is a 2,200 high speed uh, kilometer high speed rail network connecting the Arabian Peninsula, um, all the way from Bahrain, the UAE, Oman, with rail corridors, high speed being the function, and new cities and new industrial sectors built up along the way, all the way to Mecca. Now there's another project that's under discussion right now to connect extend down Mecca down into uh, Djibouti through the, the Bab el Mandel, Mandeb 28 kilometer uh, uh, rail or and or tunnel, which uh, is now being brought back to life. Now, the Yemenis, with Iran playing a role as a negotiator and mediator, would uh, would definitely benefit enormously under a long term healing process. The, there's another project to connect Medina up through in up up into the Mediterranean with Egypt playing a big role and uh, Jordan playing a big role there too. Um, this is this is reality. This is what the this is incredible. Just looking at this map, I mean, just look at this. It's it's totally beautiful, and the, it's incredible. Has already been built. Uh, it was completed in 2017 by a Chinese rail company. Um, now Western. Um, Westerners have been taught to poo-poo this and complain about this rail line because it hasn't provided the economic explosion that was promised and expected earlier on. Part of the reason for that, which is totally dishonest, is that the reason why the, the original business plan that would have involved a lot more economic activity here in Ethiopia did not happen to, to flow is because the Tigray region of the north which is run by so you know um, essentially terrorists tied to the Tigray People's Liberation Army, which itself is being supported by the U.S. State Department, unleashed civil war for much of the last two and a half years. It was only recently that a peace deal was brokered, thank God. But even that is a very fragile peace deal. But that has prevented a lot of the the, the stability which the business community requires to invest in regions like this. However. This is now finally seeing a turn. We also had the Eritrea Abiy Ahmed, the, the president of, of Ethiopia, got a Nobel Prize. Today, today he's being demonized as this killer because he stopped playing by the script, but he got a peace prize for um, initiating a, a peace deal between Eritrea and Ethiopia back in 2018. All of these things are very, very vital to getting everybody on board. Now, if you scroll down to the next, um, the next image, that is just below this one on that article, you're going to find here. Yeah. Now this is really beautiful because this features what the Africa union, um, again, set up in Addis Ababa and headquarters built by the Chinese right there. That's, that's the, uh, the Africa union capital in the only country that has never been colonized by any European powers, Ethiopia. That's why they want to destroy Ethiopia. And that's why the Ethiopians have a very, um, unique character when you speak to most ethiopian patriots it's it's got a it's it's a quality which is very rare to come by in africa of people who are really they're poor they've not been permitted to develop but at the same time they're very proud and very very wise people and they take such pride 
in the construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, as well as the rail line. But this, this program, which features nine different rail lines connecting east, west, north, south Africa, we've, I've gone over this in the past shows uh, here on Rogue News, but I really want to hammer it in because it's everything. This involves connections, as we can see, the, the, the first Dakar-Djibouti railway is already being built. When China built this little blue line, and they also built something similar in Kenya to the south, um, the Nairobi-Mombasa railway, they always built them with the intention of having them connect up with the blue, with the yellow lines. All, and this green line is already under construction. The, the first part of it is there, but the plan is currently to connect it through into Sudan, into Chad, into Niger, into Mali, into all of these different regions, all the way up into Dakar um, on the port of West Africa. There, this in the West, this is already being built here. There's also stuff going into uh, Morocco that China is building. The first high-speed rail line has been built up um, by China in the north in Morocco. Um, the Moroccan government has come out, as has the Tunisian president, in an interesting in an interesting new line against the IMF, which is which I find interesting. Anyway, this would be the Trans-African Rail Rail Corridor. This has been made even more possible due to the fact that Africa finally finalized. A, a long-awaited free trade agreement so that for the first time ever, the continent can have not just easier flow of goods and people within, but also an integration of what was known back in the 1960s of what Kwame Nkrumah and, and Patrice Lumumba were championing, which was Pan-Africanism, knowing that we're better united than divided. And um, the the empires of Europe have always had always maintained a very divided continent of Africa, knowing that, of course, if you start allowing for common gauge rail to be built up, and, and whether it was Belgium or France or, or the Netherlands or uh, or Britain, any of their colonies, if you look at all of those colonies, they, they did have some rail built up by their colonial um, oppressors, but it was never rail that benefited the people, and it was always rail that was built in different gauges. So these rival colonialists of Europe as much as they they fought over who would control different parts of Africa, there was a certain amount of rivalry. They were all united in an agreement to keep the continent as a whole, divided by making sure that their, the, the, the rail lines built by uh, Belgium were incompatible with the rail lines built by France or by um, England. So there was no ability to ever build what China is currently endorsing with Russia, which is this whole thing. So the first line to be built will be the first um, east-west rail corridor. Um, it does go through Sudan. So whoever can disrupt Sudan will be able to disrupt this entire region. Also, if you could disrupt Sudan, that would bring uh, Ethiopia into greater disharmony as well, which is, like I said, suffering from a very fragile peace right now. Um, the Kenyan uh, government currently under the current president recently uh, made some interesting uh, calls for for becoming more economically independent and working in this direction as well. And the whole uh, threat of connecting the Djibouti rail line through as it will connect at some point into Yemen with the help of Saudi Arabia, UAE and other states. That's also big. Now, going back to the the, the Junglai Canal, water is key in this region. This is the poorest region of Africa in the Horn of Africa. There's 24, 240 million people living in the Horn of Africa of Somalia, Ethiopia, South and North Sudan, um, also Kenya. That Horn has 240 million people. It is an immense region of abundance potentially, but no development. So if you could start harnessing the waters of the Nile, which is one of the greatest um, uh, 
potential wa water systems that that's big but there's not that much so people have been induced to fight over over the scarcity of, of the nile water um how can you increase the abundance of the Nile water? Well, the Junglai Canal is where you, you would do that. The plan was originally formulated in the 1950s, right as soon as Sudan declared independence. Wow, that was really disturbing. I'm, I'm sitting right in front of a window in my study and a, a bird must have thought my, my <laughs> Dude. just smashed its face right into my window. Oh my <laughs> God, I heard that. I heard that. I was like wondering what the heck that was. I think you dropped something. No, that was a bird community. holy cow trying to go for a, a kamikaze run on my house that was weird <laughs> wow um all right that was disturbing anyway <laughs> oh we have a, a stupid comment of the of the of the day we have a stupid comment of the day yeah connor rush rush yeah. whatever however you want to great development but i won't expect people with below 80 iq to make this happen wow okay yeah that's that's racist so anyway, Connor, yeah, I hope you can get some help with that. Now, that, so let's go back to the Junglai Canal. So the Junglai Canal was was formulated back in the 1950s, and with the help of Egypt and a French construction firm, it began being built in 1978 using a um, a giant uh, digger that was brought in from Pakistan and built. They they this digger is amazing. It was a 40 ton giant uh, machine that could dig a canal stretching 50 feet, 40 to 50 feet in, in width and seven meters in depth um, at a speed of two kilometers a day. And this thing was operating 24 hours a day in three cycles, nonstop for several years. It was about 75% finished. They, they cut the canal that would uh, connect this part of the, the Nile to this part. Um, and the water flows north, right? Um, they that That was... 275 kilometers of the of the full 360 kilometer expanse was cut was built and then the civil war in 1983 under the sudanese people's liberation army was launched that disrupted this to this very day this giant machine sits in the middle of this region where it has been serving target practice for militia members throughout the, the course of the the civil war that raged all the way up until 2005. um it, it it could be easily revived. And if it were done, this region, which is known as the Suds, um, this is one of the most flood-prone, disease-ridden region, uh, regions of the world, which kills thousands of people. It displaces thousands of people every year, I should say. It does kill hundreds, displaces thousands, destroys food crops. It's a, it's a disease-infested, stagnant water zone of just collecting water. Um, no agricultural development because, of course, the green conservationists have had their, their hands all over this place for a number of years trying to say this is protected region and it should not be permitted to have any type of such uh, technological development contaminating it. And the head of the, the civil war, the uh, that, that was the head of the separatist movement that created South Sudan, he later became the first president of South Sudan in 2004. This person who led the war that kidnapped the 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 um, the the um, uh, the employees who were working on the jungle jungle canal they they were all kidnapped at the time when the civil war broke out. The person who headed that was a Western trained green degrowth ideologue who wrote his doctorate's uh, thesis that in economics on why the jungle canal would be disruptive to to natural ecosystems. That's what he had done in in Ohio 
when he was studying there in 2000, in 1981. So this guy was, it's always been that whole civil war was devoted to block this, this potential project. Now, Bashar, Al-Bashir called for reviving this several times in 1994, in 2001, in 2005, in 2007. He was doing this while working with Egypt and with, with Libya to build the, the great man-made water system that Gaddafi uh, died defending. Um, he was doing this as well. Um, There's a grand vision at the time, right? Um, so he had to be taken out, and he eventually was. But now the 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 plight of the South Sudanese had gotten to such an extent that the current that the that the the former um, in 2001 the minister of irrigation and water of South Sudan worked he had a meeting with his uh, Egyptian counterparts to uh, and announced the revival of the Junglai Canal. One of the two um, figures who are currently battling in South in in the northern Sudan, I should just call it Sudan because that's the only legitimate Sudan in my mind, um, is um, one is uh, Mohamed Daglo. Mohamed Daglo had given a, pre a press conference about seven months ago, calling for the revival in this the northern Sudanese support for building this. What would happen if it was if this were built? You would have about seven million acres of agricultural land created, a draining of about 35% of the swamp. So even for the greenies who who freak out over human beings eliminating the the natural swamplands and disturbing some of the hippos and alligators who live there, um, they would still be a vast amount of swamp. Okay, they they should still be happy. But what would happen would be now you would have um, a massive influx of fresh water that would become available in the desert parched Egypt and Sudan. That water would vastly increase the, me the means for accessing fresh water to residential and especially industrial centers that need to be built up in both regions. That would also provide a greening of a lot more of the regions in a zone that had formerly about 4,000 years ago been uh, a lush green space, just like the Fertile Crescent, which is today mostly um, desert, right? In Saudi Arabia, Iraq, there's a lot of desert. But why do we call it the Fertile Crescent? It's because not that long ago, on the grand scheme of things, this was a fertile crescent of lush green space back in the days of Persia and the Babylonian Empire, all the way up until Rome, frankly. So <clears throat> stupid imperial policies that don't think about the future basically cash cropped that entire zone into desert. Same thing for northern uh, the Sahara zone. But with competent planning, you can easily turn the vitamin-rich desert soil into lush green spaces once more. That would also reduce, and this is why the head of Egyptian intelligence supported this, this jungle canal with the South Sudanese Minister of Water and Irrigation back in 2021 and again in 2022, um, because this would completely erase any tension that is being set up between Ethiopia and Egypt over the Grand Renaissance Dam, which, you know, the Egyptian some of the more stupid Egyptian uh, fanatics who are um, a little bit insecure about the the lack of water, right? Like 90% of Egypt's population lives up here in the mouth of the Nile. That's 90%. It's a huge underdeveloped territory. And it, for good reason, a lot of it is is just, it's desert. So they, they cherish the water that comes up there. They're freaked out that this dam is going to diminish the quantity of water that they, they will have access to downstream. That's not true because the reality is the Ethiopians don't want to use this dam for agriculture. It's simply for electricity and nothing but that. But 
you know, there's still tension. So having this excess abundance of fresh water would get rid of that tension, create a basis of trust. Also would again, create a basis of economic development, which whenever you have economic development, as the Chinese proved very, very concretely in the case of Xinjiang, not that long ago, when you provide real economic opportunities and intelligence and training and a means of having a, a productive life, the client, the fertile soil for radicalization and jihadism disappears. Surprise, surprise. When people have something to live for, they don't want to die to go to virgins and they, they don't become um, easily radicalizable, uh, radicalizable proxies for the CIA. Same thing for Ukraine back in you know, 1989, 1990, when Ukraine still had a really powerful, robust economy, the neo-Nazis were not an issue. They were, that wasn't a, there was not much of a danger of these creatures either uh, becoming a, a significant force or having young people in Ukraine back in the 80s when they had a, aspirations for a, a good future to become radic radicalizable um, under this weird um, neo-pagan satanic uh naziist mythologies so <clears throat> economic development is key that's really everything and it's not about money it's about what are you building what are the energy systems that you're bringing online and what is the basis of win-win cooperation that you're providing and the whole horn of africa if if this region can maintain the current trajectory of peace with the help of russia and china and increasingly iran and saudi arabia and increasingly egypt um if if that pro-peace policy of thinking about our kids, our grandkids, the type of future we're leaving for them and creating peace through development. If that can be maintained, and we see that all as well with Syria, where the Arab League had a recent meeting um, and Saudi Arabia participated in that meeting, supporting, number one, um, reestablishing positive relationships with Bashar al-Assad, who they recognize is the legitimate author uh, leader of, C of Syria, but also they made a powerful call to the United States to get the hell out of Syria. And the U.S. still has a massive amount of a military presence in northern Syria, which is where, just like in the case of Sudan, where all of the, the oil and, uh, and resources are locked up in the south. In the case of Syria, all of those resources are locked up in the north. I don't have a, I don't have a picture of that there necessarily, but that's where the U.S. military is stationed. That's where they're stealing the oil. They're stealing the food. And that's where they're also supporting the various, the residual um, ISIS and other um, Al-Qaeda affiliated proxies who they've been trying to utilize to create, destabilize Syria and Iraq. So they've been told by Saudi Arabia of all people and the UAE to get the hell out of Syria. That's a big statement. Again, China played a key role in that. And overall, the US still has 50,000 troops stationed in Southwest Asia. Um, people say that China is the big bad supervillain. Fox News and you know all these idiots on the left and on the, on the right are saying that Saudi that that China is the imperialist with its Belt and Road Initiative to go in and take control of of Southwest Asia and Africa and Pakistan. Um, you know, recently there's this 58 billion dollar Pakistan uh, rail line that, that China has has agreed to build, which has seen both Lindsey Graham and Nancy Pelosi and all of the 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 freaks on the left and on the right coming out freaking out about. And the reality is, it's look, look, China just has, they don't have any military bases beyond one in Ethiopia. Um, they've got like outside of their territory, I think they have one in the Solomon Islands. They have, uh, one in Djibouti, that's about it. It's a tiny little naval outpost, that's about it. Because right. Yemen and China has been, China has been a trading partner of Yemen since 1954. So the Yemen crisis was kind of hit home for China, especially 
how important uh, Yemeni's uh, oil is for China. That hence, you know, the Djibouti naval outpost uh, over there. But yeah, that's about it, man. It's not. It's not like the U.S. You know, nine hundred and thirty some odd military bases in one hundred and thirty nine countries. It's idiotic. It's stupid. If you notice, the U.S. is incapable of building roads. They're incapable of building rail. They're incapable of building bridges. They're incapable of building power plants. They're incapable of building anything. Yep, and that's why no capacity. Not at all. No capacity. None at all. They can't think, even build think any, about how any rail in their own country. They have no high-speed rail. They, they can't do anything in the United Nothing. States. They lost the industrial power that Correct. they once had to do those things themselves. Exactly. And this is what pisses me off about the U.S. The United States is the fakest country in the history of fakeness. We've been living on nostalgia and marketing hype for the last 50 years. It's incredible where we are, especially in the last 30. We make nothing. Nothing. Unbelievable. Paper. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when <clears throat> the uh, when you've got either China or the United States uh, coming to a, a country that's been victimized by uh, by Anglo-American abuse for decades um, and China actually has demonstrated that they can build things, they can pull people out of poverty, their own as well as other people, and that they have a, a, philo- a philosophy tied to what we're seeing, what I just went through. They're obviously embracing China and they could see that look the US economy the the second biggest bank failure just is just happened you know the whole banking system first uh, first republic bank um the whole US system is sitting on a giant powder keg of collapse it, everyone it sees it everyone That's knows that the US dollar is tanking 70% of the trade between China and Russia are now happening in in local currencies of, of yen and uh, rup, uh, ruples and, and yuan same thing for increasingly India China India Russia most of the ASEAN countries are discussing settling uh, trade uh, balance of payment, uh, balance of pay- selling, settling their their pay- their payment and trade yeah. um, in local currencies. Right. Saudi so, Arabia as well. When you see countries like this who have been paid to not develop, countries like this region in the Sudan, South Sudan, and uh, and Northern Sudan, and the and the Horn of Africa in general, and, and the majority of Africa in general, where they were not only robbed, raped, and pillaged. But they were never allowed to develop by the broke, insolvent, satanic, lunatic West. Never. And then you see where they're now turning the leaf. There now is alternatives, better alternatives to what what the lunatic West has. And you see the West spiraling or swirling the toilet bowl. Now the question is, who really has the low IQ? Who's the stupid ones here? Us? Who are flushing our entire, our entire future, our entire humanity, our entire civilization down the toilet because yeah. we're led by morons, or countries that are on the up and up? Who are the real stupid ones here? Who's the real low IQ? They're not mutilating kids out there. Last time I checked, there's still two genders over there. So who's stupid? Who's low IQ? Pray tell. Well said. Well said. You know, and I'm going to just put a, a little a little point out here, too. The only time that we had had a revival in any way of this positive type of appreciation for real economic development that would be the basis upon which peace could finally occur. And, and frankly, like as many as much as many leftists want to like complain, they want to wish Israel would just like disappear. It's not I, I don't see it happening. Israel is there as a country. It's, it's been there for about 80 years, set up by the British, of course. It's obviously like Saudi Arabia played for most of that time a pretty 
nefarious role in uh, cultivating chaos in within the Middle East. Um, that's a problem. There have been good a couple of good Israeli leaders, uh, of which I would say Yossi Beilin and and uh, his boss um, Yitzhak Rabin are two good examples. Yitzhak Rabin was being the prime minister of Israel who was assassinated when he was brokering a, a massive uh, two-state solution peace deal with, with Arafat back in 1992 and 93, and then he was killed in 95, and that, that derailed everything. Yossi Beilin tried bringing it back. He had a lot of contacts and was making a lot of progress. And he, the, both Yitzhak and, and Yossi both had a certain concept of the need for real large-scale infrastructure, which the World Bank and the IMF never permitted. So the only way their peace deals could occur would be to start actually desalinating water, to build roads, to build rail, to build a means like the way China has been thinking about the, the Xinjiang region. That was how they were, they were discussing any type of viable peace process for the Middle East. Now, that largely went awry um, after Yossi Beilin was ousted and Yitzhak was killed. That being said, um, and this is uh, the U.S. used to think this way. That that was the terms of which the USA used to think. So, all that to say, the only time that this came back was in a period when you had um, Trump and tr like Donald Trump. I, you know, there's a lot of hate on Trump, right? Um, especially for his position on on the Vax thing and and uh, and warp speed, which were stupid. That being said, I, I think that. His position to also break the U.S. out of the World Health Organization was a very big game changer, and it would have taken the U.S. out of any type of obligation to follow a policy to forcefully put these vaccines into people. Oh, I'm, I'm saying things that are that's going to get this taken off of YouTube. I'm so sorry. You, you probably will want to take this off YouTube. Um, <clears throat> now, I should have said that because YouTube. Anyway, um, back to the Middle East. Trump was the one who was negotiating back in 2000, uh, December 2019, um, the, the, the peace negotiation between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And it was through Iraq. And President uh, al-Mahdi was the president of Iraq at the time who was setting up the, the uh, agreements around which Soleimani was organizing his Saudi counterparts to meet up and, and broker a peace deal around which the Yemeni situation could be resolved, as well as the Syrian situation. Now, whatever the hell launched the attack that killed Soleimani on January 3rd, 2020, um, I have seen no evidence that this was actually Trump that, that actually did that. I think Trump had to, to own it. Otherwise, he would have to admit that there's this other entity controlling a big chunk of US military intelligence outside of the authority of the executive, which is not something a president can actually admit to. Otherwise, they admit that they're a lame duck president held hostage by a foreign entity in their own country. So that's not going to be something that he would say. So he ended up um, owning it in a, in a way that used words that made people uh, despise Trump for killing the great hero, uh, Soleimani, who is a great hero. <clears throat> and al-Mahdi, the president of, of Iraq, didn't know what the hell was going on and later on blamed Trump and, you know, basically said Trump set us all up because he was the one who spent so many months working with us to try to get Soleimani to sit down with the Iranians and the Iraqis to negotiate a peace deal. And then he stabbed us all in the back and, and you know, Almighty had already been ousted from power and, and was very spiteful. But he didn't understand what the hell was going on behind the scenes. I saw, but when you look at it, well, Trump was at the time in the middle of finalizing in January of 2020, 
the uh, the China U.S. trade agreement that would have had the Chinese buy three hundred billion dollars of U.S. finished goods as part of the rehabilitation pro uh, process of Buffalo, Philadelphia, Michigan, um, to start retooling the automotive industry that had been decimated, and instead of making windmills and solar panels, making finished goods. Um, that would have been justified by the Chinese growth market, and then that would have been able to rehabilitate a, the, the lost industrial sector of the United States. That's what George Soros, when George Soros came out in, in Davos saying, my, the two greatest threats to my open society are Donald Trump's USA and China's Xi, Xi Jinping. That's what he was afraid of. Um, you also had the Abraham Accords. And, you know, again, the Abraham Accords had a lot of problems, but at the same time, it was a lot of what is currently happening with Saudi Arabia, UAE, Jordan, um, Egypt, uh, playing by them having recognized the, the legitimacy of Israel as a state, it created a basis of trust around which a lot of the current negotiations to create a peace process in Syria have been made possible, or increasingly the uh, the potential to create. Um, a negotiated peace settlement between the warring factions of Sudan that has been made possible through the type of environment that has been created by the Abraham Accords, which originally had a big economic uh, development package tied to it. And Trump came out, his son came out, um, outlining the type of a multi-billion dollar investment strategy that could be built to, to give jobs and meaningful work to both Palestinian and Israeli youth to start building real infrastructure in the in that region, that hot spot, which was never permitted. Why? Because there was a coup and something didn't happen in the U.S. Now, <clears throat> if the U.S. were not part of the World Health Organization, if they were not, if if you had a continuation of the strategy of the, the severing of the CIA from the conventional military systems of the U.S., which is what uh, Colonel McGregor was brought into the Trump administration right at the very end in November, October, to oversee the severing of um, CIA operations from the US military, if this had not been sabotaged and reversed, and Mark Milley even made a point that he wasn't even following or carrying out Trump's orders towards the very end, um, we would see a very different role that the US would have been playing in a positive way in this entire region of Africa and the Middle East, um, as well as with China and with Russia. Um, even the U.S. ambassador who played a role in Trump's impeachment, the form, who was part of the Victoria Newland complex, even testified saying in an interview not that long ago, had Trump been president, then there would be no war in Ukraine because Trump would have acquiesced to all of Putin's demands to have a, you know, a, a no Ukraine and NATO agreement and certain, you know, agreements to obey Crimea's participation as a part of Russia uh, remain intact. So she admitted that that's the case. And she said that that's why it's so good that Biden is in power, because now we're not agreeing to Russia's demands. But she's also saying that, well, it's good to have this war. So we have a very different character of the U.S. today than we did two and a half years ago. And so I'm saying this because a lot of people who I talk with and I work with are through cynicism, pessimism and black pilledness, eating way too many black pills, increasingly falling for the type of strategic thinking promoted by um, localist ideologues who have become little, you know, influential priests of opinion, of opinion formation amongst like, the alternative like, uh, media. Like, like Peter Zeehan. I would say Zeehan being one, but it, right now I'm thinking more of in, in terms of people like uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, who's uh, a bit of a, um, yes. a, a guru of banking. And uh, I, I don't know how. I, I don't know how. <laughs> well, I don't know how. 
and I'm the guy who's, I'm the guy who's been there, got that, you know, been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. I don't know how, Matt. I don't know I how. Think it's weird. It's really weird because I mean, maybe she's genuine. Maybe she actually means what she says. But this idea of money, cash is king. Think local, decentralize. Forget about trying to win over the federal fight to to take back the government. That whole thing, which is again really divided, conquered. That is. Oh man, it's not going to work. I mean, this is this is a way to really get people's energy to be put into something that will divide and conquer them later on. Because if you let go of the idea of saving the union, the way you know, right now I only see Bobby F. Kennedy Jr. and Donald Trump in their own limited ways, but actually creating a a, a fight that would involve seriously, you know, taking back federal control to to a nationalist orientation to the United States. If you let go of the fight to use the power of the nation state in opposition to this international oligarchy, you will divide yourself in a decentralized way, which the oligarchy wants that. They want everybody to think local and act local and not not and just give up on the idea of the type of fight that Russia and China are carrying out because they didn't give up. They they use the power of the sovereign nation state to carry out not only a defensive strategy against, you know, to defend their own people from the type of economic warfare that has been waged and military warfare by the oligarchy and their proxies, but also a positive offensive fight against the oligarchy by unleashing the type of strategic security and financial policies that we have now seen coming online with the BRICS Plus and the broad, broader multipolar alliance against those depopulation death cultists. So <clears throat> I'm saying all this just because the fight is uh, is still on. It's not a done deal that they've that the death cultists have completely controlled the United States on the federal level yet. They've they've made a lot of wins, but there's still a fight. So people should really be thinking about that and how the U.S. is going to play a positive role with Africa, with uh, brokering a deal for a new economic architecture with Russia, with China, with Pakistan, with Saudi Arabia, with all of the other countries that are going to have an emergency. There will be an emergency summit of nations that it will be set up in the face of the 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 the, the meltdown of the Western financial system. It's going to melt down and. As Lyndon LaRouche has said, had said before he died many times, when this thing hits that threshold, that that next phase of collapse, when that happens, you don't. No one can know the exact date and time that that'll happen, but it, it's going to happen. And when it happens, that chain reaction is going to be unstoppable. It's going to be pervasive. It's going to be nonlinear. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be something that we've never imagined as far as a level of death and destruction that will force that type of conference the the likes of which we had seen in 1944 in Bretton Woods that two week conference that saw the leaders of most governments of the world get together to set up the conditions of an, of a new financial system that's going to happen whether the outcome of that will be on the terms of the davos crowd that wants the the new wiring the new system of values to be premised around a degrowth anti carbon anti carbon footprint policy of essentially global, you know, putting a monetary value on activity economically like Green New Deals, which will shut down the means of production of society in a forced contraction of the global population down to sustainable levels of 500 million, maybe 1 billion people maintained under an oligarchy, whether that's going to be the new system of rules of the new type of, you know, public private fascist organization, or whether it's going to be a system that we see expressed and defended by the Russians, the Chinese, and their allies of the multipolar alliance, 
where the, the idea of value is restored to the idea of increasing productivity. The powers of labor have to increase. The powers of mental labor, the powers of mind have to be able to increase with that dignity, love of freedom, love of country, um, in an idea of leaping over limits to growth, to sustain more people at a higher quality of life, always. If that, that might be, that is the other option we have that will set the stage for how the digital bank currencies are gonna be used. How the, um, the idea of the behavior of a, uh, artificial intelligence, computer learning, automation, 3D printing, all of these technologies that could do a lot of good or they could do a lot of bad doesn't matter it's they're neutral as technologies but the the system that will be brought online that will define how they're going to be used and the type of value the type of idea of what a human is the source of value um that is going to be what the us what potentially maybe canada at some point i don't know might be dragged well has to be dragged into at the very least we have to be able to play a positive role in that in that new Bretton woods type of discussion for a new system of human-centered development not you know not, not Gaia worship. Um, so that's how I'll, I'll just end today's, my, my remarks today. I don't know if you have any, any final thoughts you, you'd want to throw out there. No, no it, it, it's, uh, it, it's funny. You got, you got some people getting butthurt about, about that old Catherine Austin Fitz statement, but it's true. That's the, you know, it, she, she served in HUD uh, housing and urban development. That is a private public uh, governmental office that interfaces with a specific um, uh, community re redevelopment and credit, as well as loan and financial functions for local development. That is not banking. It's not banking. It's not the same. I'll put my bona fides against hers any day of the week. It, it, it's annoying, man. It's it, it's annoying. They, they'll literally call people who have zero zero ideas, like zero zero. Um, experience in any of the industries that they comment on. It's, it's, it's incredible to me. And I find it annoying. I've been in the space since 2004. I've been doing the same thing. I'm very good at it. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's like, stop. I, I mean, I mean, here's I'll post my bona fides if you want to see it. Bang. That's my bona fides. That's me. What? There you oh, go. They, that's in the chat. That's in the that's, chat. Yeah, I just put it yeah. there. there. There's my name. I've been in the space since 2004, working in rare earth, strategic metals industry starting in 2010. I've worked as a commercial banker, working with medium, large-scale corporations and businesses, creating what? Strategy and what? Banking, debt, and credit markets for what? A City of London member bank's U.S. operations. 2013, I joined as a broker in precious metals for what? The London Bullion Market Association member procurement logistics company. I mean, there's, no, there's no comparison, dude. I still do this. This is what I do. I deal, my clientele are hedge funds, family offices, institutions and sovereigns and i do favors for friends and family that's about it mm -mm -mm. Ugh, Catherine austin fits i mean i respect what a lot of things she says but come on this is getting ridiculous well you know i but that's the thing right i i i want to take a, an approach a diplomatic approach where i'm not trying to attack her i'm just trying to get across that and and you know what she says about conspiracy theories mr globo all that stuff i i, I think that you know it's like the, the language for me is distasteful because I, I feel like she's kind of it's kind of like a, a conspiracy version of, of course like, talk language of speaking to people like they're like their children right but that being said there's good things in there that are that is useful but at the same time when it comes to the positive prescriptions of what we should do which is where the substance is 
at the end of the day, that's where I think that uh, a lot of damage is being done because if everyone follows those prescriptions of, you know, uh, cash is king, as if the whole cash system is not being set up to blow out, good luck with 100%. that. Or like, you know, just just turn your, pay your debts and uh, buy, buy uh, pay off your house and buy land. Like, I'm sorry, if, if you think that that's a way to actually spend your energy and time, most people who listen to her can't do that. They're living in debt paycheck to paycheck. They can't buy a house. They can't pay their debts, you know? And if they did have a whole storehouse of cash, it's not going to ultimately serve that well, that much good in the long run because cash is going to be blown up with the banking collapse that's been set up to blow up. So, and, and if you just go for decentralized, think local, fight local, and, um, and everybody just decentralizes themselves, I'm sorry, that has never worked. The only people who like that are the oligarchs who control a centralized global um, deep state operation, which want you to, to do that, to be in little Amish-run little communes where you can be taken down and killed. I'm, you know, I'm sorry, that's the plan. So... You know, it's not a way to fight this thing. No, it's the not. The approach that, that, that Trump has put forth that demonstrated that you can actually derail some of the designs by stopping the Hillary Clinton machine from taking power as it was intended to take power in 2016, that demonstrated that the oligarchy has major weak spots um, if you do it in a certain way. That also involves thinking internationally and especially about business from the standpoint of what I've been discussing here. If you do that, you can fight the oligarchy. And you can rehabilitate the United States. You can build back the Rust Belt into a viable part of the economy. You can do right. all these. You can break up. You know, Switzerland nearly passed a Glass-Steagall bill when credits when Credit Suisse collapsed that week. The Swiss Parliament came super close to passing a, a Swiss version of the U.S. Glass-Steagall bank separation bill. It got narrowly defeated by like two votes. It was crazy, but this could happen so quickly, which would force, you know. Imagine that you, you got the banking collapse going into the next phase of meltdown. And instead of just printing money or bailing in the banks or, un, you know, uh, blowing out our economy and in, in order to facilitate um, a green central bank digital currency, which is that's part of the agenda yeah. with an evil version of this of a social credit for depopulation. Instead of that, you instead of that, imagine you actually have the type of thing that the Swiss were, were actually fighting for debating in parliament, which is bringing back, breaking up the banks, wiping out the un, the unpayable assets in those too big to fail banks, instead of bailing them in, don't do that. Just wipe it out, declare it bankrupt, reorganize the viable part of the, the healthy banking system, which is tied to farming, people's savings, things that are viable, defend that part of it, and then remobilize that, that good credit within the, the salvageable banks, the way Franklin Roosevelt did, or the way that China has been doing um, towards building big projects that are going to create abundance and be and have self-liquidating um, investments that will create corridors of productivity that will then not only pay off the debt that you incurred to build it, but that will create more free energy that you could then reinvest back into the system's R&D and other things to both maintain and improve the system in a way that will see well, a real natural human system brought online. That's a, that's a whole discussion that needs to happen. People have to think about and spend their energy and time thinking, how did Franklin Roosevelt break up the Wall Street banks? How did he sabotage the London Central Banking Conference of 1933? And how did he stop the New World Order attempt number three um, in the 20th century with the fascist Mussolini project? 
how did he set up the Bretton Woods system and why didn't the why did the Bretton Woods system not function the way that FDR and his allies who were anti-colonial intend? Why did the US-China-Russia alliance that was being prepared to set up the new economic architecture after World War II, why was that disbanded? Why was that sabotaged? How did JFK revive that policy in a positive way before he was killed? How was his brother reviving that policy? So instead of doing the things that work, people are thinking about decentralizing um, and like getting off the grid, which again, it's gonna kill you. Like I'm, I'm, I'm straight up, I'm not, I'm not even like, trying to be scary here i'm just telling people straight up it that will result in them and their families dying and getting like that's what the oligarchy wants and so listening to people like Catherine austin fitz uh prescribe these things is going to get you killed and anybody and else here's the thing as close as they might be is maybe they're good people but they're they're very they're wrong. wrong it's like austin fitz what's that other guy uh colbert oh Col uh corbett 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 james corbett the, what these people are doing, right? If you've been in the game for as long as the, you know we have, right? These these are people that are reading off of each other's tea leaves. They're reading off of each other's stuff. So it's like they're sharing their own ideas, and they're they're literally just repeating it without understanding the full gravity or the knowledge or the the actual veracity of what they're even talking about. That's what it comes down to. I'm like, okay, that, that's a repeated uh, 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 theme. I've heard that before from somewhere else, you know. And it, 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 you can just tell. Whereas you come over here, you're you're gonna read, you're gonna be hearing things you've never heard before. Period. Well, yeah. And I mean, maybe next week what I'll do is is do a deep dive to remind people of the fallacy of the Austrian school, because you know the, both Catherine Austin Fitz and James Corbett are devoutly influenced by a doctrine that was created by the Habsburg Empire and its right. hereditary elite, uh, centered in Austria called the Austrian school. Um, Karl Menger, Ludwig von Mises, uh, Ludwig von Hayek. people, Americans today have been told that if they want to be patriotic, good Americans, they have to be Austrians. They don't realize this is absurd. What does that mean to be an Austrian? I have to be a good, or to be a good American. I have to be an Austrian. That's insane. If you look at what these, these creatures were, they were just repackaging the British empire's Adam Smith doctrine, which is the most itself was the most anti-American thing you can imagine. That was a big reason why the American Revolution happened was to break America and the free of the of the type of policies promoted by the British Empire under free trade of Adam Smith. Um, so that that was repackaged under the Habsburg Empire and re and sold to Americans after uh, the First World War as something which somehow is going to um, shape our thinking about banking and about, you know, global policy. If you do that, I'm sorry. All governments become evil. If you use government power to do to do things, that just the act of using government to do things is intrinsically fascist and bad in the mind of um, an Austrian school thinker. Whether you're um, a Lincoln or a John F. Kennedy or a Hitler, it's the same thing because you're all using government and central power to do things that involve economics that infringes upon the personal liberty of the individual which they presume is the source of value which is everybody's right to do whatever the hell they want which is not what liberty is liberty comes with responsibility the the austrian school definition of liberty is not liberty it is vice it, it's license you know it's not there's no responsibility attached to it. it it allows for the idea of drug legalization uh to be normalized like they've done in british columbia under this this doctrine or in big chunks of the u.s which is, you know, 
calculate drugs and drug sales as part of GDP because people want it. And if they want it because it gives them pleasure, it's thus good and thus should have value. Thus, we should calculate it into it's our so GDP stupid. analysis. That's so what stupid. it is. That's exactly what it is. That's, you know, that's how, it, it, it's it's how much how, how much uh, prostitution services are using. Oh yeah, yeah, count that into the GDP because that's industrial production. Oh yeah. No, it absolutely. It's 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 insane. And, and but now you have federal jobs in Canada being set up in you know the, the Canadian government has taken control of the 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 weed production industry. Now you, you know people are lining up all over Canada in the official Canadian government sanctioned weed sales uh, depots. And there's lines every day after work because everyone's depressed and nihilistic and wants an escape uh, and they want to kind of numb themselves. So you see these lines everywhere. And, and yep. the production facilities for the weed is now all federally controlled, federally regulated um, in these big industrial zones that formerly were producing cars in Windsor, Ontario, that are now producing like, you know, massive amounts of various weeds and gummy bears. Um, and we call that, you know, a big economic boom. It's like you're doing things that are consciously harming the overarching uh, psycho-spiritual health of your society and calling it GDP. And now in British Columbia, they've done that as a pilot case that they're going to next do for all of Canada, which is legalize everything. You've got government-run psilocybin um, industries being set up right now to start promoting government-sponsored hallucinogenics as part of a new um, a new form of, of expanding the, the, uh, the GDP and create more jobs it's insane the uh, it's as insane as bu building government sponsored windmills and solar panels which are also going to cause self-mutilation to the people and our ability to sustain ourselves but yeah, we'll exactly. make jobs happen but we'll make jobs happen i mean it's 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 completely incompetent it runs contrary to everything that we've ever seen function historically as far as the battle against oligarchy and is, it is the very opposite of everything that makes Russia, China, and their allies viable today. It's because they're not doing any of these stupid things. So all that to say, yeah, people need to just get their heads out of their asses right now and look at what, look at history, how the fight has operated. Look at the future from the standpoint of who's currently fighting for the future. Because the future is the only thing that really exists. The present cannot change. The present is is the consequence of our foolish or wise decisions, whatever they may be, that's where the present is. You can't change the present. The future is constantly being, it's potential. It's constantly changing it. It's, it's being recreated at every moment when every single person decides to remove themselves from, you know, from participating in reality or, or when they, if they choose to change their identities and intervene to encourage in a town hall meeting, like, uh, you know, Jose Vega did intervening on the, the editors in chief of the major uh, mainstream news press agencies, that took a lot of courage. Now, what he did is he changed in a certain way the, the future, because that that completely changes the, the, the entire field in which the the potential exists, that that is being shaped by people's perceptions, beliefs, uh, willingness to avoid reality, he forced reality into the perceptions of a lot of people. So it the future is being recreated by and to varying degrees of amplitude each one of us are influencing the recreation of those future potentials for good or for bad so we, that's really where banking and monetary policy should be located is in a study of how that works in a way which is in harmony with natural law the law that demands that we progress and leap beyond the limits to growth like nature does without us for billions of years as far as we've seen evidence of life existing in a material way on the earth, what we've seen as examples is non-Darwinian 
uh, activity of life yeah. from lower states of potential to higher and higher states of organized, both increased complexity, but increased order, increased um, power of, of motion, of sovereignty, of action, as well as increased power to sustain um, more refined emotions that animals, that mammals can, can express, which reptiles can't, which reptiles exactly. can express, which plant life cannot, which right. humans can express, which none of those earlier things can do. So there's a, a directionality in nature that human beings can also express when we do things right that involve improving nature as well as ourselves in a way which is in harmony with the new laws of creative nature and God's law. Yep. And this is what the oligarchy has been trying to stop for thousands of years. Yep. So that, I mean, if there's anything that I would want people to take home is that idea. And obviously, if they want to like unpack this a little bit more, reading my wife's book on the, the Anglo-American origins of fascism in the 20th century that people can get on uh, CanadianPatriot.org, that is a, a, a tight, tight lesson that you can give yourself as a gift of knowledge and insight into how the oligarchy organized fascism as a movement in the 19th century, how the roundtable movement set itself up, how they created the, 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 anything fascist within Islam, within Judaism, within Christianity, with all of these fascist movements were all created by eugenics loving fanatics of the roundtable movement and Habsburg empire together who worked in tandem to bring about a very dystopic uh, feudal reality. They've been, and, and so my wife goes through that in crazy detail. I want people to, to really, really read this stuff. If they want a copy that's signed, they can send me an email. I'll get my wife to sign it, Cynthia Chung, um, and she'll send it to you at uh, info at risingtidefoundation.net. Also, if they want to read my books on the untold history of Canada or the clash of the two Americas and really know this material thoroughly, um, do it that way too. If you want me to sign some copies, send me an email too. But you can get it on CanadianPatriot.org um, very easily, all of these things. And I just encourage people to spend their time enriching their understanding so that when they do choose to act, they will be positive amplifiers of a good future and not an inhibitor of that type of necessary future we have to bring online. Very well said, brother. Very well said. Folks, he is Matthew Errett, the man, the myth, the legend, the man who is spearheading the prophet of the multipolar reality himself. You can catch him over at the CanadianPatriot.org, RisingTideFoundation.net, as well as his own Substack, all of which is in the description box. And if you need the description box, it's going to be on YouTube, Facebook, and everywhere else. Uh, uh, Twitch doesn't have it. Also, we're streaming live on Rumble. Yay! That's right. We're on Rumble live. Streaming on Rumble. Pretty awesome. And you can catch us on Spotify and Amazon Music and everywhere else. That being said, we're over now. Cheers, everyone.